have you ever had that moment in your life where you did something so bad you shocked yourself? You know what I'm talking about? Like you're, you're in a fight with someone and you're just so angry at them and you're just so, so upset that you say that one thing, that one thing that you know is going to be so hurtful to them. More than anything else, it's going to penetrate into their heart and just break their heart. And the second you feel it coming up out of your stomach and through your mouth and through your lips, and the second it blurts out, you're like, oh, I can't believe I just said that. Or maybe, maybe you've learned to control your mouth a little bit better, but there's another behavior that you never thought you would do. Certain behaviors that you thought, you know, I will never be like that. I'll never let myself become like that. And then you start crossing the line here and there with different behaviors. And before you know it, you're all of a sudden this person that you never, ever thought you could be. And you're looking back and you're like, how on earth did I get here? Who am I even? And your behavior is shocking to yourself. Do you, do you relate with me at all on that? And it's shocking to us. But it's not shocking to Jesus. Jesus knows your capacity for evil. And that capacity shocks us. It doesn't shock Jesus. Jesus knows your capacity for evil. And he knows there was a price to pay for that evil. And so he came to earth and he died to pay the price for you and for me. And that's what we're going to be talking about today as we open up to Mark. So open up with me, if you will. We're going all the way to Mark 14. We've been doing this mad dash, a series called Greater Than, as we walk through Mark, and we walked through three and a half years of ministry. We got all the way to the Holy Week, or his Passion Week, and we started off with Saturday, where he observes Sabbath in Bethany. And remember, Bethany is the home for him. That's home base. Throughout the Passion Week, he's constantly returning to Bethany. So he's on Saturday, he is, observes Sabbath at Bethany. There's a banquet thrown in his honor. Mary anoints his body for burial. Judas complains. And that's when Judas decides that he's going to betray Jesus. Sunday, triumphal entry. That is a day of his formal messianic presentation. Jesus formally presents himself as Israel's Messiah. Monday, Jesus is a day of messianic authority. Jesus proves his messianic claim by demonstrating authority in cleansing the temple. And not only does he cleanse the temple, but he has so much authority in the temple that no one could even carry a pitcher of water without his permission. He controlled the temple, a day of messianic authority. Tuesday is a day of challenge, messianic challenge, where they are challenging his messianic authority. So all of his opponents that want to challenge the authority come and challenge him, and he confounds them. They all walk away absolutely baffled about his authority. Tuesday night, he talks through future events. Jesus sneaks away and makes the deal with the Sanhedrin, or sorry, Judas, Sneaks away, makes the deal with the Sanhedrin. Wednesday is a day, a, a silent day, a day of preparation for Passover. Thursday, he celebrates Passover with his disciples. Judas sneaks away, gets this hand Sanhedrin. Jesus predicts that his disciples will deny him. They emphatically refuse 
They emphatically say, no, Jesus, even if I die, I will never deny you. And then the Roman cohort shows up. 600 Roman soldiers with swords and spears, ready to put down a Jewish insurrection. And what, is, what do his disciples do? They flee. In fact, they're so desperate to get away, one, as, as a Roman soldier grabs his clothes, he runs right out of his clothes, and he's running home naked because he's so afraid of the Roman soldiers. They all emphatically refused that they would deny him, and now they're running home naked. And that's where we pick up. Mark 14, verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. So the they here is actually the Jewish guards. So the Roman guards, they show up, they show up, and the Romans knew how to put down a Jewish rebellion. And they knew the Jewish rebellion could get out of hand really quick. And so they come with 600. Just think about that. 600 Roman soldiers for just a handful of Jews. And they show up, and they're expecting this fight. They need to dominate this fight. And what happens? They all run. And the one guy that's the leader says, I'm him. Go ahead and take me. This was shocking to the Romans. They're like, wait, what? This is not the insurrection that we're used to. We're used to a lot of blood and having to kill people. And, and you're just willingly handing yourself over. This is crazy talk. And so they, they're like, hey, we don't need to be here any longer. The Jews had guards, but the Jewish guards couldn't have weapons. That's why they needed the Roman soldiers. But now they're like, hey, we got one guy. He's freely giving himself over, and all of his disciples have left him. We'll pass him off to the Jewish guards, and the Jewish guards can deal with him. So the Jewish guards take him. That's the they there. The Jewish guards led Jesus to the high priest. The high priest is Caiaphas, and they lead him to his palace. So he's at a palace now, and it's, uh, it's fairly early Friday morning. So Thursday night, Friday morning, right? So we're looking at like 3 a.m., and what's going to happen is they're going to hold an illegal trial. Let's go to the next slide, because we need to talk about this illegal trial a little bit. The Second Temple Jew was very proud of their jurisprudence. It was, it was kind of like our, our uh, judicial system today. It's something that we can kind of boast in, because a strong judicial, judicial system, one that you can trust, helps build a society, right? If you can't trust your judicial system, society starts to fall apart. So this was something that the Jews were proud of, and they should have been until now. They're going to make a mockery of their, Jew, of their judicial system. So it starts off with an illegal trial. Number one, the trial was held at night. For the Jews, trials had to be during the day. And why is that? Well, because Imagine the secret police come and take you and hold you a trial at night. Is anybody going to come to your defense? No, they're all sleeping still because they don't even know you're at trial, right? So first part of the illegal trial is it's at night. For the Jews and for most of humanity, trials had to be held during the day. So it's at night. Secondly, it's in a private home. Trials had to be in public places during the day, and actually typically what they would do is they'd send out messengers through the city announcing that the trial was being held, who was being held, and what the charges were, just in case there was anybody that was going to come to their defense. Because they wanted to make sure they didn't convict an innocent man. Because once you start convicting innocent people, 
your judicial system falls apart, and when your judicial system falls apart, your society falls apart. So, it's at night, it's in a private home, and that's where we catch up. So, all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. So the high priest's palace had two levels, and then a big courtyard. Most likely the trial was in the upper room. Peter is down in the courtyard. He can kind of see through the windows what's going on upstairs, but he's going to be sitting around the fire warming up. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. That's an important line right there. Did you catch that? What's the charge? There is no charge. That's our third point of the illegal trial. There's no charge, but there's a verdict. What's the verdict? Death. Could you imagine if they had arrested you? If, if, some, if a cop shows up to your door, they arrest you and say, wait, wait, what's the charge? What am I being arrested for? And they say, well, we don't know, but you're going to die. What's that going to do to your judicial system? What's that going to do to everybody's faith in, in your society? It crumbles, right? That's what's happening to Jesus right now. They've arrested him with no charge. In order to hold a trial, you have to have a charge. There is no charge. But what they're doing is trying to find a charge. They're searching. What, what can we pin on him? He's deserving of death. We're going to kill him. How do we go about killing him now? That's what's happening with this trial. But they found none. For many bore false witness, and we're already to our fourth point, right? It's an illegal trial because there's false witnesses against him. But their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that uh, is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. And Mark puts this in there specifically because that is something that Jesus said. But even on this they couldn't agree because they didn't know what he was referring to. So they're having trouble pinning him down with something to accuse him of, of a reason to kill him, but they know that they need to. The verdict is death. They're looking for that reason to put him to death. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst. So in the middle of them all, the high priest stands up. You can tell he's just getting aggravated with this. He knows time is Precious, he knows that they need to hurry up and get done with this. And why is that? Because they all remember the triumphal entry. Everybody in that room remembers the triumphal entry. They remember when Jesus entered into Jerusalem and everybody was singing, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Everybody was welcoming him. And if, he, if the city wakes up and they've got him and they're holding him trial, They've got an insurrection on their hands. So they need to kill him fast. That's why the illegal trial. That's why it's held at night. That's why the high priest is really annoyed right now. So the high priest wants to cut to the chase. He's done with this, jumping around. We got to cut to the chase. We got to get this charge leveled at him. What charge? We don't know, but we're going to find it. Have you no answer to make? What is, the, what is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. He's not taking part in this mockery of a trial. He knows it's an illegal trial, so he's not going to take part in it. Caiaphas continues. 
And again, the high priest asked him. Now we know from Matthew, Mark doesn't include it, but we know from Matthew that the high priest at this point makes, uh, declares an oath. Basically, he's forcing Jesus to talk. And, and the oath basically goes like this. If you don't talk, if you don't answer for yourself, then we'll just conclude that you're guilty. So you either make, you either make up something or we will say you're guilty. That's the oath that he's going to get at here. Which leads us to our fourth point of the illegal trial. Just like in our judicial system, we can plead the fifth. We don't have to testify against ourselves. It was the same for a second temple Jew. They didn't have to testify against themselves. But they put him on the, on the stand, and the, the chief priest makes an oath, basically saying, if you don't testify, then that means you're guilty of whatever we want to claim. If we want to say it's insurrection and bring you to Rome, then insurrection it is, unless you make a claim. That's what the chief priest is doing here. So, he asked him, and there's going to be two questions within this. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? The first question, are you the Christ, gets to the point of insurrection. Now, it's important that Jesus does not get killed for being an insurrectionist. He wants to make sure that, that he's not an insurrectionist though he is the Christ. But that's the first, what the first question is getting at. The next question, the son of the blessed. That's another way of saying the son of God. And that question is a question about blasphemy. Jesus, during his three and a half year ministry, had two claims. The Messiah, the son of God. There were a lot of people that claimed to be Messiah that were never killed. By the Jews, I should say. They didn't care if someone claimed to be Messiah. That wasn't an offense worth death. But if Jesus admitted to it, they could send him over to Rome and hopefully have a charge of insurrection. But for the Jew, the important part is the Son of God. That's blasphemous. And for them, it was worthy of death. And it's true. If Jesus is not the Son of God, but I want to pick up on something else here. Notice what he's done here. For the second temple Jew to say the name of God was not something you did in polite society. Not something you did in a formal event. Notice the nicety here of, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? He doesn't say, are you the Son of God? Are you the Son of Blessed? So just think about this for a second. Because what he's doing is holding an illegal trial. He's doing things that are absolutely offensive to God by holding an illegal trial, and yet he's still going to observe the niceties of not saying the name of God. And I wonder how often we do similar things. How often do we observe the niceties of being a Christian and yet letting hate fester in our heart. Well, I would never, never say a cuss word. Oh, but that person on the opposite side of the political spectrum, oh, I just wish they would die. We might go to church and then sing a hymn 
And then when someone cuts us off on the way home, we make sure they punish it, and we punish them, and they know that they made us mad, and we flash our lights at them. And then we might even speed around and slow down to just make them all the more upset. And we observe the religious niceties, all the while letting anger fester in our heart. It's a part of legalism. Legalism is believing that you can earn righteousness in God's eyes. That you can earn God's favor. And we are all struggling with legalism. To a certain extent, every single one of us is a recovering legalist. Every single one of us believes that what we do can somehow make us better or more holy than someone else. And we have to recognize it in our own heart, and we have to fight that. Because legalism always breeds death. So we continue on. We see the nicety there. We see the, the, the irony in holding an illegal trial while, while having a nicety within the, the uh, questions. And Jesus said, I am. And there's, two res- there's a twofold response here. Jesus simply says, I am. Meaning, I am both the Christ and I am the Son of God. He confesses to it both. And then he goes on, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. That term power is also a nicety, meaning seated at the right hand of God. And coming with the clouds of men. Now what he does here is he quotes both Psalm 110 and Daniel 7.13. And what he's really getting at here is, hey look, right now you're sitting as my judge, but in the end, When all is said and done, when all the dust settles, I'll be your judge. That's what Jesus is getting at. And he's not doing it in like a vindictive way. In my sinful heart, I want to be like, yeah, get him, Jesus. Go get that guy. But what Jesus is doing here is letting them know the seriousness of the situation and letting them know the reality. And he's doing it out of a heart, out of love. He didn't hate the chief priest. He desired that the chief priest would also come to salvation. The chief priest has set himself up as the enemy, and what does Jesus do to the enemy? He doesn't hide the truth, but he tells the truth out of a love for them. So that's what Jesus says. And the high priest tore his garments. The tearing of this garment is actually an official judicial act. It's a a judicial act that that, uh, reveals the guilty verdict. So sometimes we read that and we're like, man, he's really angry right there. It wasn't that he was angry. That's, uh, That's for the Jewish custom. And said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? I want to stop there for that second, just a brief second. That's the charge that the Jews have against him. Remember that. Because when it comes to Good Friday, the charge is going to change. When they bring him to Pilate, the charge will change. The charge for the Jew is blasphemy. The charge in front of Pilate will be insurrection. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophecy, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And what we've got here is this punishment inflicted on Jesus. And sometimes we get caught up in in the brutality of it and the, the physical side of it. But what this is really meant to do, and even the cross, what it's really meant to do is shame Jesus. 
And that's what legalism always ends with, is shame. They're not doing this just simply to punish him. They're doing this to shame him. And when we start playing around with legalism, when we start giving into our legalistic tendencies, when we don't live in grace, that's the outcome, is shame. And so some of the question now is like, we'll be sitting here and we might think, am I a legalist? Because it's, sometimes it's difficult to decipher, am I a legalist or not? I mean, lo we love God's word, right? We want to follow God's word. We know that there is truth in God's word. And so, so it's easy to start thinking, well, I'm not a legalist. I just hold on to God's word. I just proclaim God's truth. And a legalist does that often. But the way they do it is so twisted that it produces shame. So how do you know if you're a legalist? I think a good measurement is do people, when they are in trouble, when people are hurting, do they come to you? Do they come to you to talk to you? Because they know that through God's grace, they will be restored. Because God's grace is all about restoration. Don't get me wrong. God knows you stink. God knows you messed up. And what he wants to do is he wants to restore you. But legalists, they don't want to restore you. They want to shame you. And so what happens is when you get in trouble or when someone else gets in trouble, if they're running to you, they're like, man, I messed up big. I need your help. It's because they know that in God's grace, they'll be restored. God will use you as an instrument for restoration. But what the legalist does is produces shame. And so what happens is when people get in trouble, they will do anything besides go to the legalist. Because they know that the legalist will just heap shame upon them. Jen and I have been listening to this podcast it's, uh, by an artist named J.J. Heller. I highly recommend it. She interviews different people, and she's interviewing this uh, lady named Lindy. And in this interview, this, this woman, she was assaulted when she was in high school. And as a result, now typically, parents, if your kids are assaulted, what do you want them to do? Come, talk to me. Help me. Let me help you walk through this. Let, let's look at God together so you can heal from this assault. But her parents were legalists. And as a result, instead of going to the people that she needed to go to, she just felt shame. And in the interview, she says, I felt like I was already ruined. So why not just do something to numb the pain? And she goes and she finds another guy. And then she gets pregnant. But she can't tell her parents because she knows that her parents will only be mad and disappointed, and she knows the shame will just be heaped upon her. So day, she's in college now, and she's living with her parents, and day after day she wakes up, and she goes through her morning sickness, and she tries to pretend that she's not pregnant. And finally, her parents are not dumb. So they like, take her aside, and they're like, are you pregnant? We notice you've been gaining a little bit of weight. You're sick every morning. Are you pregnant? She finally <coughs> confesses. Parents, how do you know you're a legalist? When your kids get in trouble, 
Do they run to you or do they run away from you? It's a tough question that every parent needs to ask. Because God's grace restores. And when we are living in God's grace, we become people of God's grace. And God uses us as instruments of grace to restore the hurting and the broken and those who have messed up. But shame is produced by legalism. Legalism produces that shame, and it makes us run. So that's what they're doing here. They're shaming him. And then Mark jumps back to Peter. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. Now, one interesting thing is that we look at that term Nazarene, and we just think that's like a title. But this is actually something that she says with contempt, because she was a Judean. And Judeans were better than Galileans, right? That's how legalists always work, at least. Because I'm from a certain place, I'm better than you. You know, if you ever go to a small town and you know the, the locals there, we're born here, so we're always going to be a little bit better than you. That's what she's doing here. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. And so what we've got going on here is he's sitting by the fire, and this girl, she recognizes him, and she looks at him, and she's like, oh, wait, wait, yes, you were with him. You're, you're one of them. And what does he do? He stands up. He denies it. And this is, denial is, is written in an aorist tense, so it's a one-time done completion. And he stands up and he starts to walk away because he doesn't want to be recognized. So he wants to get away from the light of the fire so that they don't recognize him. But as he's walking away, she's like, oh no, I got you. And she points it out again. And what does he do? This next sentence in, in verse 70 is what's called an imperfect, and it reflects repetition. So he says, but again, he denied it. And so he's not quoting Peter here, Mark's not quoting Peter, because what's happening is he's, he's putting out several arguments on why he couldn't be with Jesus. It's not just that he denies it, he's denying it over and over again at this point. And after a while, the bystanders again said to Peter, they're, they're starting to recognize it because he talks so much they can hear the accent. So they said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse. And a lot of our translations will say on himself. But this curse is, is in what's called a transformative. And this transformative needs an object. And most likely that object would have been Jesus. So let's think about this denial now. Not only is he denying Jesus, but he's doing it in a way that would be like, if I was with him, then a curse be upon him. Not only is he denying it, but now he is putting a curse upon Jesus, and not only a curse, and then, he, and then he begins to swear as well, and this swear was actually appealing to a deity. So it was kind of like, I'm telling you, if I'm wrong, then curse him, and I'm going to invoke deity to, to uh, help me along with this. I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. 
as Jesus is suffering through an illegal trial and abuse, Peter is invoking a curse as he denies him. Before the cru- and he remembered what Jesus had said to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. And this word wept means to mourn or lament. So sometimes we read that and we think, you know, he might have a couple tears trickling down. That wasn't it at all. Peter broke down. He begins to bawl his eyes out because he recognizes his own brokenness. Up until this point, Peter has been emphatically denying that he would ever deny Jesus, right? He's been insisting. Peter has been kind of warped in legalism, like all the other ones are bad, but Jesus, I'm going to hang with you. I've seen the transfiguration. I've seen all that you can do. I am with you till the end, Jesus. And he's puffing himself up, thinking that he is not this broken fool that he really is. And at this moment, he recognizes his brokenness and his hurt and his pain, and he breaks down and begins to lament, to weep. We are all broken. Jesus, Peter was shocked at that moment, right? Peter was shocked that that he would deny Jesus. He didn't think he could possibly do it. Peter was shocked. But Jesus wasn't. Jesus already predicted it. Jesus wasn't shocked, and beyond not being shocked, Jesus also knew that he would restore Peter. Jesus wasn't shocked, and he knew that with his grace, Peter would be restored. We all come to that moment. We all have moments in our life where we shock ourselves with our behavior where we do something, where we cross a line that we never thought we would cross. And we're shocked. But Jesus isn't shocked. And we can handle that shock in one of two ways. We can either harden our heart and justify our behavior. And that typically sounds something like this. Well, she deserved me saying that because... Or, I I deserve this little thing because... And it always comes down to some type of justification or rationalization, and it's all about excusing our poor behavior. And we harden our heart, and the end result is isolation and loneliness. Or, we could recognize that we are broken people. We did not hang the moon. We mess up on a consistent basis. And that is specifically why Jesus came. Because we, sh- we have shocking behavior. And that behavior deserves punishment. Jesus came to take the punishment, to bear it on your behalf, so that you could be fully restored and that you wouldn't have to live with shame. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you came to this earth. You didn't leave us to ourselves. We didn't leave us 
to our own depraved hearts. You didn't leave us to, to just live in legalism and blaming and shaming others. But you came to this earth that we would live for you. You came to this earth to die on a cross. And we pray that you would help us to live for you. In your name we pray. Amen.